Amen. Thank you, choir. What a beautiful song. That text comes from the Psalms that the choir was singing and at the beginning and the end there. And, you know, we don't think about waiting all the time on the Lord and his timing. It's very countercultural, but that became very real to me when I was talking to Donna Yuri, one of our choir members this morning about this song. I said, I love this anthem you're singing today. And she said, I can't get through it without crying because her husband is in memory care unit suffering with profound stages of Alzheimer's. For her to wait on the Lord means something very specific and very real and became very real to me in that moment. So thank you, Donna, for sharing that with me this morning. We're going to continue to walk through the Gospel of John today. Uh, For those of you who are visiting, we've been walking verse by verse, which I'm not sure this church has ever done it. I don't think I've ever done it, gone through an entire book of the Bible verse by verse, especially one this lengthy, but we're in the home stretch. I think Alan Wharton's been, he's been labeling his lessons. I think this is week 42. We're in week 42 right now of the, the Gospel of John series. So only nine more remaining, which is crazy uh, to think about. So uh, we're going to walk through the part of John that we're in is known as the farewell discourse. And it's this incredibly rich text where Jesus has an urgency to the words he's saying because they're his last words before his betrayal and arrest and death and resurrection. So he's, he's telling his disciples these things in the context of the upper room around the table at the Last Supper, and they have a certain weight to them because of the context in which we're in. But I, I wish we could, you know, just take them, you know, two or three verses at a time, but we would never get through the Gospel of John, and we're on track to finish in November. So we're just flying through it, but I'm glad this week we're only looking at 10 short verses, okay? So, uh... I'm not much of a runner. I know like, uh, you know, Ryan Snellen here and and others, Humza was saying he's running like 60 miles a week. I don't drive 60 miles a week, but we have some real runners in this church. I am not one of them, but I do enjoy getting outside every now and then and going for a little run around my neighborhood. Uh, I encountered David Gregory when I was on a run. He was, lives in the same neighborhood and I said, I do a little two and a half mile loop. He said, I, I do a four mile loop. I said, oh, okay, thanks. He's <laughs> twice my age. That's okay. That's, no, it's fine. Um, so when I run, our neighborhood is very hilly and you have to learn to pace yourself because if you don't, you will die on the hills because it's, it's very hard to run uphill when it's, you know, 112 degrees outside and the humidity is out of control. And um, I've learned that on the hills, I, I kind of, try to get through them and then take it easy on the downhills so you can catch your breath and rest a little bit on the downhills. Today, I hope is going to be a bit of a downhill for us, that we can just pause, catch our breath. We've been flying through. I did all of John 14 in one crazy sermon. Um, This is going to be a little bit better today to just stop, breathe, and rest, and dwell in these 10 verses today and really walk through them in a rich and slower pace than we've been doing. So let's stand in honor of God's word today as I read our text, John 15, uh, verses 18 through 27. Hear now the word of the Lord. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, 
but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they also will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, there are a few themes that we can pick up on throughout the farewell discourse, John 13 through 17. There's a few central ideas that we can latch on to. And the, the, the one that we've been talking about for the last three or four weeks, ever since John 13, 34, is the theme of love one another, the new commandment that Jesus gives to us, to love one another just as he has loved us. How do we do that? Trey told us last week, by abiding in Christ, by staying connected to the true vine. That's how we will love one another. But now Jesus jumps into a theme that, you know, you talk about love one another, I kind of get the warm and, and fuzzy feeling. That's great, love each other. That sounds awesome, Jesus, thank you. But, but now he, he gets into a new idea of persecution. That's, that's one I don't really enjoy. <laughs> that's one I don't really want to hear. That's one that doesn't make me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. It's not a particularly fun theme, but if we will pay attention to what Jesus is saying here over the next few weeks about persecution in this world, it will enable us to navigate this world in which we now live for the time being, at least, in a way that leads to flourishing and thriving as God would have us to do. So Trey did a great job of preaching through that first part of, of John 15 last week where Jesus commands his followers to, to abide in him and dwell, to meno in, in his love. That was some nice Greek work there, Trey. And then we're going to be able to love then. And if we dwell in him, then we will be able to love just as he loved us first. But now we're in this concept of if the world hates you, verse 18 says, just know that it hated me first, Jesus says to his disciples. And this concept of the world hating them is about to get really real for the disciples, isn't it? While Jesus was among them, Jesus bore the brunt of the world's hatred. We don't read anywhere in the Gospels about the Jewish authorities plotting to kill Thomas. They weren't after Peter, not until Jesus 
resurrected from the dead and then ascended back into heaven, did the disciples become the front runners of this new movement? They became the figureheads. They took over for Jesus. When Jesus ascended into heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit into them, they became the front runners of this new community called the church. The disciples were now the, the tip of the spear for the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people into the body of Christ. And the movement would soon explode worldwide because of the Holy Spirit's power. The Holy Spirit would come. God, the Spirit, would indwell these new believers and enable them to spread in power across the world. And soon earthly empires would crumble in the face of the Holy Spirit's power going around the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Not even the gates of hell could prevail against the church, the ecclesia, the body of Christ. But the, the great church father, Irenaeus, said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It was also a great time of persecution. We know that Emperor Nero blamed the great fire in Rome. When he looked around for someone to blame, he said, uh, it's got to be the Christians. They did it. Get them. And it became an intense time of persecution. Even before that, in, in 42 AD, just about 10 years after Jesus's ascension, James, the son of Zebedee, you know, the brother of John, the sons of thunder, James was martyred by Herod Agrippa I. Peter, who was part of Jesus' own inner circle along with John and James, Peter himself would be martyred soon later. He was crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to die in the same manner that his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ died in. Andrew is thought to have been crucified in what is now Greece. It was Asia Minor. Tradition says that Thomas was pierced by four spears by soldiers in what is now India. All of the disciples we know, except for John, were martyred for their faith and for the part that they played in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. The world indeed would hate them. Why, why, why is this? Why does the world hate Jesus' followers? Why is it that there's such an intense hatred that would lead to martyrdom? Because they are not of this world. Look at verse 19 again. Verse 19 says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You know, when we're born, each one of us, we're born into this world. We know, just like Psalm 51 says, we are born into this fallen realm where sin has wrecked everything ever since Genesis 3. We're born in the flesh of humanity that, that cries out for redemption and hope and healing. And, and we had the option. We could continue to walk in the flesh, to walk according to the flesh, to live pursuing the things of this world, to live in the natural capacity that our flesh would go if it weren't for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus changes everything for us. 
If we had continued to chase after the things of this world, the, the Bible tells us here, we could have the love of the world. It could be ours. You could be admired and popular and have power and be successful if you will pursue the way of this world. But Christians have been called by Jesus to come out of the world and into his own body. He has grafted us into his body in order to make us a new kind of people who now operate on a whole other level, a whole other plane of existence, a heavenly plane instead of an earthly one. This calls for a very different kind of existence. And let's look at how this happens. It all goes back to Jesus Christ, of course. When Jesus came into the world at the advent of Christ that we celebrate every year at Christmas, he, he entered into this broken, fallen place as the perfect divine son of God, son of the living God. And the world did not appreciate what Jesus had to say about it. He didn't have some real nice things to say about this place. Look at John chapter 7, verse 7. It'll be on the screen here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. It's not a very popular message for the world. He shows up and says, yeah, you guys have wrecked this thing. <laughs> you guys have made a real mess of this place. They didn't want to hear it. Remember John 1. John 1 is this beautiful prologue to the whole book of, of John, the whole gospel. We went through it during Advent. And it gives this beautiful promise in verse 9. It's such a beautiful passage. I love John 1. John 1 verse 9 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. Praise God. The one by whom all creation was spoken into existence was coming into that very world which he created. He was coming into the world to rescue it and bring it back unto himself and to make all things new once again so that creation would be very good once again just as it was in the beginning. That's where we're headed. That's a beautiful thing. But the prologue takes a tragic turn at the end of verse 10 there. It sounds all great, but then it says, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. How sad is that? They didn't know him. The world did not receive him. The world didn't even recognize him. And soon the world would come to hate him. In verses 22 to 24 here in, in John 15, Jesus explains that when he showed up on earth, he came to reveal God. He showed God the Father and the good ways of God the Father to the world. And the world did not appreciate that because he showed God's perfection. He revealed God's holiness, his complete and utter otherness than this profane world. And he therefore convicted the world of its sin. 
He showed the world just how far short they were of the standard of God's holy perfection. And therefore, they have no excuse now. It says here, they have no excuse in verse 22. And really the word for excuse in Greek, really, it's not an excuse. It's really more like pretext. They have no pretense. There's no way they can pretend to be justified in their sin because they know now that it's sin. It is wrong against the holy God of the universe. I was listening to David Brooks' uh, 2016 book, The Road to Character, uh, on my drive to and from the cabin in North Carolina where I was writing last week. And he says it's really important. He's, he's writing as a secular columnist. He's not writing as a believer. But he says we need to recover this word sin. It's an important concept for us to understand because we might try to reduce sin to an idea of like a mistake or an error that you make. He said we, we need to understand there's something broken within us, that, that our nature is to run towards the flame, to run towards death and destruction. That's the deeply flawed part of us that he calls, and the Bible calls, sin. And the only remedy for sin is a savior. It's nothing that we can cure on our own. It's not something we can manage in our advanced degrees that we have and our successful businesses. Nothing will enable us to manage our sin effectively. We need a savior. And that's what the revelation of Jesus exposed to the world. The supreme revelation of Jesus Christ both exposed the broken, fallen, sinful nature that we all you know, are born into, but it also exposed the remedy for that. That on a cross, Jesus would pay the price that we could never have paid. That he paid the debt that we could never have come close to paying ourselves. The revelation of Jesus both exposes sin and provides the remedy. But the world that hates the exposure of sin, the world that hates to be told you're broken and flawed, also denies the need for a remedy. I'm okay, you're okay. That's the false gospel of this age. It's a lie and it leads to destruction. It only makes sense then that as Jesus' followers grow in their intimacy with him, as they abide in him, as they dwell in him, as they become more and more conformed to his image and more obedient to his commandments, that the world would hate them too. The world reacts to Jesus' followers in the same way that they reacted to Jesus. So the result is persecution. I love how D.A. Carson puts it in his commentary. He says, Former rebels who have, by the grace of the king, been won back to loving allegiance to their rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion. It's as if we've crossed the picket line or something. The world is still in denial as to who the true king of the universe is. There's still an open rebellion against him and against his ways, against his order. So when we enter into the kingdom of God by the grace of Jesus Christ, then, then we become connected to the kingdom 
in that intimate way, then the world sees us as traitors. The result, therefore, is persecution. In verse 20 here, Jesus reminds the disciples of the, the foot washing lesson back in chapter 13. Remember the word I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will definitely persecute you. And, and when we talk about persecution in the West, we really don't know what we're talking about, okay? We really have no idea of what real persecution looks like. When you talk to some of our Swahili congregation who literally grabbed what possessions they could in their home as warlords came into their villages, then we kind of get to a little bit of perspective of what persecution really looks like. Persecution, and even that wasn't always religious persecution. Persecution for our faith is, is something that in the Bible Belt especially we've yet to really understand and experience like some of the 1040 window in the world, in some of the Arab nations, in, in some of the Middle Eastern nations, in North Korea, in China, you can lose your job and your life for following Jesus Christ. So here's a question. How is it possible that this new community of, of believers, the church, could so accurately represent Jesus to the world that the world would react the same way to them as it did Jesus? Aren't they still broken? Aren't they still flawed? How is it that they could so accurately portray Jesus to the world? It's because they're filled with his own spirit. Look at verse 26. When the helper comes, the advocate, the parakletos, the, the one who comes alongside of us, like me running along May's bike with my hand underneath it, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness to the world about me. The Holy Spirit's going to come, Acts chapter 2. He's going to show up at Pentecost in power. He's going to indwell Christians and empower them to be the body of Christ in this broken world. They're going to be transformed into the actual, physical, living presence of Jesus Christ in this world. When we're called the body of Christ, that's literal. We are physically the body of Christ to a world that desperately needs it. Wow. That has profound implications for how then we should live. There's a great little book. It's, it's little, but it's, it's dense. It's like 150 pages, but it's over my head. Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon. That's a great alliterative name. William Willimon wrote a book called Resident Aliens back in the 80s about politics. And it warns Christians uh, against getting too comfortable in our earthly identity. It says that we are not loyal to a country first and foremost. We are not loyal to our jobs. We are not primarily bankers or teachers or pastors, whatever our job is. We are not primarily a family member or a mother, father, wife, husband, daughter, son. Our primary identity has to be rooted in Jesus Christ if we are a Christian. And because of what Christ has done in making us into this new creation from the inside out, we are now strangers here. We should be uncomfortable in this world. Howard Wasson and Willimon advocate that we should see ourselves, therefore, 
as part of a Christian colony. My son's reading about the, the Revolutionary War. He's learning, learning about the colonies, the British colonies that were sent by one country to an, a strange and foreign place in order to advance the strategic interests of that home country. That's how we should see ourselves here. As part of a Christian colony sent to the earth, but not of it. I love this quote from the book. Have you seen those signs that say, you know, keep Austin weird? Have anybody been to Austin, Texas lately? It's kind of like Nashville. It's got an artistic, you know, music scene, a lot of food, uh, you know, great restaurants. And they, they say, keep Austin weird. I've seen some keep Nashville weird t-shirts. I'm going to propose today that we say, keep Christianity weird. Keep Christianity weird. It's supposed to be odd. Listen to this. We believe that many Christians do not fully appreciate the odd way in which the church, when it is most faithful, goes about its business. We want to claim the church's oddness as essential to its faithfulness. There's a certain oddness about Christ and his church that should seem very strange to the world. If we're not seen as odd, we may not be faithful to Jesus, according to Willimon and Hauerwas. I think they're right. You know, I had so much fun at the, the food truck festival here a couple weeks ago. That was amazing. How many of you came to the food truck festival? Wow, a lot of you. There were 21 food trucks here and, and ton, hundreds of people from all over. Braden Maffitt told me he met a family that drove from Chattanooga to come to the food truck festival. All this little girl wanted for her birthday was to go to a food truck festival. So they drove over two hours to come to our church for the food truck festival. And, and people kept asking, how do we pull this off? What, what, how do we get this, you know, how, do, we, do we pay a lot of money for this? No, we didn't. We, we have some very high and influential people in our church, Jan Regions, son-in-law is the president of the Nashville Food Truck Association, and they meet here in our building once a month. And as a thank you, they said, we want to put on this event. And it cost us nothing. We split the cost of the tent out there to eat. And, and we just were out there with raffle. Uh, you know, we, we paid a few hundred dollars, I think, for four $25 gift cards. And we got hundreds of names, and we contacted them this last couple of weeks. And we've reached out to all these visitors through that event. And it was a great, a great time to be together as a church family. It was a lot of fun. And I talked to one young guy who had a couple little kids with him and his wife was frantically trying to get the kids fed with all the food trucks. And um, he was a really nice guy. And he said they don't really go to church. And, and he said, you know, what, what's the, the deal with this food truck fest? And I was like, what do you, what do you mean? And he said, what's the, the point? You know, what are you trying to, to, to accomplish? And I was like, what, what, what do you mean? He's like, well, what do you, there's no charge. He said, I, I thought there'd be some kind of a, a, a fee to get in. He said, are you, getting, are you getting a cut? Are you taking a cut from the, I was like, no, we're not getting a cut from the food trucks. We're not, we're not taking any money from this. He was like, what, why? There's hundreds of people in here. He said, why not monetize this thing? <laughs> and, and, and I started thinking, he's in finance, of course. Uh, I started thinking, he's, he's viewing this through a worldly lens. Anytime you can get hundreds of people together in Green Hills, it's an opportunity to make money. 
is what the world says. And sure, we could have made it into a fundraiser, and that's great. I'm not against fundraising. A lot of nonprofits do fundraisers, and that's great. There's some incredible nonprofits that, that advance uh, you know, the cause of, of good things, and they do good work in the community. But we are not simply a nonprofit. We are the body of Christ. We are to operate in a very different kind of way than the world operates. We are to be counter-cultural in a radical, radical, strange kind of way. We are the instrument by which God is bringing heaven to earth. We are the, the, the tools that God is using to make all things new, to accomplish his purposes in redeeming the world. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are the family of God himself. We are priests in the kingdom of God. We live by a totally different set of values than the world does. That's why the, the, the whole point of our lives, the why of our lives, the how of our lives, the what of our lives are all now completely redefined in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.9, I want to close with this, is a powerful verse about our new identity in the body of Christ. 1 Peter 2.9 says, you are a chosen race, you plural, you are a chosen, y'all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I'm going to give you three points from this, just briefly, that Jack Miller in his book, he's got a great book, it's kind of a gross title, but Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. That's, that's kind of a poignant title. Three important things that this one verse tells us about what it means to be the body of Christ. First, it says that we are God-possessed. We belong to God. We're his own people, his prized possession. The second thing it means is that we are now God-separated. We are, are completely different from the world. We are a holy nation, consecrated to God as different and distinct from the world. We have been sanctified. I love that word. We're undergoing a process of sanctification by a holy God who has come to live in us and make us more and more the, the new creation, conformed to the image of Christ as we walk the path of discipleship. So finally, it means that we are now God accepted. We are a royal priesthood, serving in the house of the Lord, dwelling in his holy presence, unashamed because of the covering of Christ. We have immediate access to God. We don't need any other intermediary between us and God besides our great high priest, Jesus Christ. We therefore have authority. We're royals now, a royal priesthood. We live in the castle of the king. And we're priests. We have first-class worship rights. We are God-possessed. We're his own possession. We are God-separated. And we are God-accepted. These are truly radical claims that should empower and embolden us 
to live confidently into our identity as resident aliens in this world. We live here, but we're not from here. I was talking to a, a godly friend about what he and his wife allow their kids to do or, or, or don't do. We're trying to figure some things out and parenting ourselves right now. And he just shook his head. He said, man, the way we do things is so different from any of our other friends. And I said, yes, it should be. It should be weird. We should be the only ones who say to our kids, I know all your friends do this, but we don't do that because we are Jesus' own possession. We act differently from the rest of the world. Sorry, kids. <laughs> People should look at our families and think that's so weird that they don't do whatever we do or that they do this. People at our workplaces should be shocked that we don't cheat a little to get ahead. Our identity as God-possessed people means we don't belong to our employers. We don't play by their rules. Our holiness, our sanctification as God-separated people will necessarily make us odd to the world. And the fact that we are God-accepted means you can take a breath. You don't have to work so hard at earning God's favor or the world's favor either. We don't need it because God, through Jesus, has given us the ultimate, ultimate identity as an adopted and beloved child of the King. That is where we find our worth, our true worth. Many people who claim to be Christians in the Bible Belt where we live are really only playing at Christianity. They're, they're playing at church. They're still of this world, really. They're still chasing the things of this world more than they chase after the things of the kingdom. This is why so many of our churches lack power, Holy Spirit power. A lot of churches are more focused with fighting each other or fighting the culture, culture wars, than they are about fighting the own, their own sin in their own lives. The call today is to lean into our identity as resident aliens, filled with the Holy Spirit, called out of the world in order to be the body of Christ and transform this world for his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time together today. We thank you that you have reminded us that not only is it okay to be odd, but it's not okay to have the love of the world. God, we all want to be liked. We all want approval from this world. Help us to remember that we are your children and that is all the approval we need. May we find deeper worth, deeper love, deeper satisfaction than anything this world can provide. We pray that the love of the world would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. God, we pray that you would remind us that in order to be faithful, we must necessarily be odd. Help us to live by a totally countercultural set of values than what the world projects as the way to live and thrive and flourish. We know there's so many, so many competing voices in our lives, so many different distracting voices that tell us if we'll only live this way, then we'll be happy. If we'll only buy this product, then we'll be happy. Then we'll flourish. Then we'll thrive. God, your word tells us something completely different. 
It says, come and die. Come and die to ourselves, and then we will truly live. Help us to find the abundant life that you came to bring us by surrendering all that we are at your feet today and saying, God, we want to live for you in a radical way, and we want our reputation to be all about you. We want our identity to be all about you. We want our entire lives to be all about you, oh God. Convict us today. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation now. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ for the first time, we invite you to come forward now. Maybe you feel the Holy Spirit. Maybe the hound of heaven has been after you for weeks, for months, for years now. And it's time for you to surrender to him and say, all of this is yours, God. Take it. I want to be your child and tell the whole church. Maybe you need a church family and you're ready to join Woodmont in this family of faith. We're not a perfect family, and I don't know of any perfect families out there, but if you want to come and be a part of what Woodmont's doing and say, I'm ready to plug in and jump in and be a member, we'd love to present you as a candidate today for membership and talk about what that looks like. If you just want to come pray at the altar, maybe you just have something heavy on your heart today. Maybe you just have had a season where you just need to come and say, God, I will wait for you. I need to wait on you. If you want to come pray, I'll ask Trey if you'll come up this way. Martha, if you'll come stand here, that'd be great. If you want to pray with Martha or Trey uh, today, they would love to pray with you and, and have that any requests. We're going to sing a song I used to sing as a kid growing up in Baptist Church. I've decided to follow Jesus. That doesn't mean that you play at church. That means you die to yourself as you follow him as Lord of your life, of your loves, of all that you are. Let's stand and sing, I've decided to follow Jesus.